You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. I had an interesting conversation with one of my colleagues this week. Uh, We were talking about the way we deal with questions and problems that come up at work. And she said, it was interesting. She says, whenever whenever I come to you with a, a situation, the first thing you say is, what are the facts? Not what if someone told you, what's your opinion, what's the emotion, what are the facts? And have you asked all the questions to ask, establish exactly what's going on? I said, well, fair enough. Um, maybe. Um, that, that, that's fine. She says, yeah, well, that, that's fine. She says, but what I can't understand, given that in daily life you're you're interested what the facts are how you can then have a faith she said for me the two don't necessarily go together and I thought about this and I said well actually I think they do because I would maintain that faith is faith is is absolutely important but we I don't believe in blind faith I'm not going to believe in something just because it's nice and woolly and cozy I believe in something if there's some evidence that says it's 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 a fair thing to believe. And personally, I like to feel that my faith is exactly that. Clearly, faith is in something higher than ourselves. My faith is in God and in the things he's revealed in his word and the things he's going to do. But that faith, I don't believe, is baseless or blind. It is a faith based on good reason. And that's really just something we want to explore for a few minutes together why we can believe in Jesus Christ and some of the evidence that we have. And we're going to think about Jesus and why we can believe he he was and is a real person who rose from the dead and who will rule God's kingdom on earth. And that's the sort of frame, if you like, of what we're going to think about together. So the first point is why we can believe that Jesus is a real person. You know, Jesus lived some 2000 years ago, his life and work are well recorded and they're well recorded in historical records we want to think about that for a few moments you know when we think about historical records sometimes we don't think about the gospels the first four books of the new testament but actually these are historical records they were written in the years following jesus life on earth and his his death and resurrection They were certainly written before 70 AD. We can look at the text and see the way they're written. We say 70 AD because 70 AD was the year that Jerusalem was destroyed. And so the language that's used in the gospel speaks of the the places that Jesus visited in Jerusalem as still existing. So we have these written and perhaps more important is they were written in the lifetime or in the lifetimes of the people who witnessed Jesus work. And those would be those who were friendly to his work, so the people who were writing in this case and others, but also those who were hostile to Jesus' work, which means there was opportunity right from the start for these records to be challenged, either in their entirety or in their detail, but but they were not. And we have four gospel records. I've put them there on the screen. We, We maybe remember there's Matthew, Mark and Luke and John. And maybe we just think for a minute or two about each one of those. 
taking John first. John was one of Jesus' disciples. He's one of the first people that Jesus called, and he was with him throughout his work. He was also one of Jesus' closest disciples. So he witnessed certain parts of Jesus' work that, that others didn't. He had three closest disciples, John and his brother James and Peter. And what John wrote was an eyewitness account of what Jesus said and did. And if we just have a little look into John, um, let's have a look at the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We have this little insight where the writer gives this comment in case we were to miss it. Now, John 19, verse 35. Now, this is in the middle of the record of the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're not going to go into the detail of that, but just picking up on a couple of comments that he makes, that, that John makes writing his gospel. So this is an intense part of the narrative. Jesus is on the cross. And John just inserts this in verse 35 of John 19. It says, he that saw it bear record and his record is true. And he knows that he, that, that he says true that you might believe. He's just reminding us, I was an eyewitness. And the, the gospels tell us that John was there when Jesus was crucified. And we have that little message to remind us. This was real. I saw it happen. If you turn over to chapter 21, sort of amongst the closing words of his book. He has another comment, verse 24 of John 21. This is the disciple which testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. So that is the, the other disciples, we would assume, but those who were able to verify that what John had written was true. So what we have in John's gospel is the eyewitness account of someone who was very close to Jesus, saw the things he did, the things he said, and it's corroborated by others from the same time. So we're thinking of the gospels really as, as historical records. They are more than that, but they are historical records. Now, if you went to the John Rylands Library in Manchester, part of Manchester University, you can see the oldest known fragment of the New Testament, which is actually taken from the Gospel of John. Now, the dating of that actual papyrus varies, but it's generally agreed to have been written, or of that to have been copied well within 100 years of John writing it, even, even those who date it latest. It may have been within 50 years of John writing it down. So what we have is a document that goes right back to the time that gives us an eyewitness evidence could have been challenged but wasn't and has survived to today and that's just one of the gospels matthew well he was another of jesus disciples he he was uh, he became a follower of jesus slightly later but he saw a lot of jesus work and would then spend his life with others who knew the work of jesus so again an eyewitness account but was supported by others who were with jesus mark well, he played a much smaller part. He wasn't one of Jesus' closest disciples, but he was present at some of the events. We know he was around towards the time of Jesus' betrayal and the Last Supper and his, and his ultimate crucifixion. He's, he appears in the other records. But again, he would live and work with others who had been with Jesus. We find him in the Acts of the Apostles, which comes after the Gospels and talks about the work they did after Jesus' death and resurrection. So again, he was able to collect that information, to validate it, to verify it as he wrote it down. Luke, well, well, Luke became a Christian later. 
probably, we don't know for sure, but probably after Jesus' death and resurrection. But he lived and worked with those who were direct eyewitnesses, like John and his brother James and the other apostles. And so again, was able to validate what he wrote against those eyewitness accounts. Now, let me say, just as an aside, I fully believe these records were inspired by God. But if we just take them at face value as eyewitness accounts, they stand up to scrutiny. You see, you've actually got four eyewitness accounts that actually tell the direct story in, in, in subtly different ways, because as we've said, they're different people, they're slightly different experiences and slightly different time with Jesus. But they're direct personal experiences with eyewitnesses to validate them. And those four records corroborate each other. Even though they're sometimes quite complex, they interplay with each other. And they were not challenged by those who witnessed the events. So I would present that as a set of evidence that we can believe that Jesus was, is a real person. At this stage, I'm not even going to go beyond that. But they are evidence that Jesus existed. But let's move on a little bit. because. We can actually go to other historians from the time, to the secular historians of the time. Now, these were not supporters of Jesus or his followers. In fact, quite likely to be antagonistic towards them. But they still record that Jesus existed, some of the things he did, and about his followers. Now, the first of these is Flavius Josephus. Now, he was a Jewish commander um, who was defeated, and he found it very convincing, uh, convenient, having been defeated by the Romans, to instead of being a Jewish commander, to become a Roman historian. That was better for his life, life prospects and for his career. But he wrote extensively in the first century AD. He wrote several historical works which have been very well supported by archaeological evidence um, to show that he, he did a pretty good job and he's generally accepted as one of the great historians of the first century particularly in the roman empire in in in, in the middle east so say he was writing in the first first century ad and one of his books was called the antiquities of the jews um, and this was written in about 93 ad so not very long after the time of jesus i would add it's not an easy read um, and it's definitely not a quick read but it's very handy to dip into but this is one of the things he says. He says, there was about this time Jesus, a doer of wonderful things, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. Pilate condemned him to the cross and Christians are named from him. Now, I will add a slight health warning. There are those who believe that he gives an overly positive view of Jesus, but they may have been influenced by Christians. Maybe. Actually, it doesn't matter. Because what he does prove to us is that Jesus was a historical figure who was recognised at the time. And it does tell us that the Christians were named after him. And it does tell us that he was executed by Pilate. None of these facts were disputed. That's a secular historian. And actually, he talks of about a few other people who come up in the New Testament. He talks about John the Baptist, who was killed by Herod, who was Jesus' cousin and came to prepare the way for the work of Jesus. And he also talks about James, the brother of Jesus, who was the, the leader of the first century church in Jerusalem, um, who also suffered under the Romans. So there, in this secular historian, not, not a supporter of the Christians, um, 
there's just simply the evidence that Jesus is a real person. The other people who appear in the record were real people. And no one was writing to say, what are you saying, Josephus? This is crazy. It was an accepted fact. And there's a couple of others. Uh, I won't bog us down too much in uh, first century history. For some of us, it's quite interesting. For most, probably not. But here we have Tacitus. He was a Roman historian and politician. And he wrote, amongst other things, his annals. Um, and here we're slightly later, about 116 AD. Um, and this is what he had to write. He wrote that the uh, they were called Christians by the populace, speaking about the followers of Jesus. And he says, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius. And I've just dropped the dates in that he's referring to, which is between 14 and 37 AD. Now, we know that Jesus was probably executed about 29 or 30 AD. So that falls in that time frame. And it was at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, who, was, who, who ruled AD 26 to 36. So here we have another historian, again, a Roman historian, probably antagonistic towards the Christians, but he maintains that Jesus existed, his followers were called Christians, and that Jesus was executed under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And you can see even the dates, therefore, add up. And just one more. This is Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman lawyer and, he, and, and a writer. And he wrote a letter to the Emperor Trajan in AD 111. And again, he's referring to the Christians who were obviously current at his time. He said they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ. When this was over, it was there custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, ordinary food. So again, we have a, a historian of the day referring to the Christians and their customs, who's documenting them to the emperor, and also to Jesus or Christus, the Latin version of his name, from whom they were named. So we see that the historians of the day, there was no debate about whether Jesus was real. It's quite popular today to debate whether Jesus ever existed. To those who were around at the time, whatever they thought of him, he was a real person who did real things. He lived and worked, and his followers called the Christians. And they're well documented in history. There's, there's others we could go to, but hopefully that gives you a flavour that there is real evidence that we can go to. Now, the second point we want to think about is that Jesus rose from the dead. How can we know this? Well, firstly, and it's a little bit like our first section, because there were lots of eyewitnesses who saw him. Now, you can go to the Gospels. In fact, let's do exactly that. Let's go to the Gospels and go to John. You may even still be in John. Each of the Gospels actually records the resurrection of Jesus, and each of them talks about the people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead and the things he said and the things he did. So we're just dipping in here. But John 20, verse 1, we have the record. The first day of the week comes Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, to the sepulchre and sees the stone taken away from the sepulchre. So Mary's coming to the tomb. She wants to, to anoint the body of Jesus, who'd been executed just those three days before. But the stone's been taken away. Verse 2, then she runs and comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple who Jesus loved. By the way, that shorthand that John uses for himself. You can go to the other Gospels and see it was Peter and John who would then run to the tomb. 
And she said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. And the record goes on to talk about Peter and John running to the tomb and finding it empty. But then we see people meeting the risen Lord Jesus. Verse 11, so Peter and John come and they go, they go away. Verse 11, Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre and sees two angels in white, one sitting at the head and the other at the feet of where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say to her, woman, why weepest thou? And she says, because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. She's naturally upset. She doesn't quite understand what's happened. She's seen Jesus crucified and now the tomb is empty and she thinks of people stolen the body. Verse 14, when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and she didn't know it was Jesus. The last thing she would expect really, wasn't it? But Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who do you seek? She supposed him to be the gardener and said to him, sir, if you have borne him hence, if you've taken him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned herself and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, master. And there we have that first record of Jesus, who had been raised from the dead, meeting one of his followers. Quite an emotional meeting, that. Mary waiting and taken by surprise. And this is interesting that for most of Jesus' followers, it was a surprise that they, they, they'd been told Jesus would rise from the dead, but they struggled to believe it until they saw it for real. Let's go over to that reading that, that we shared with Daz at the start of 1 Corinthians 15. Because if you want eyewitnesses of Jesus having risen from the dead, well, we've got eyewitnesses, hundreds of them. You know, in, in court, it only takes a couple of eyewitnesses to prove a case. Here we have literally hundreds. And Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and he starts by going through these eyewitnesses. Verse three, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And he's saying, the old, and we know the Old Testament was full of prophecies about Jesus having to die, but then being raised from the dead. But then we have these eyewitnesses from verse five. He was seen of Cephas, which is another name for Peter, and then of the 12, and those were Jesus' 12 disciples. And after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present, but some are fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen of James, and then all of the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also. So when Paul was writing... This was probably about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He was saying, there's these named people. He says, there's me and there's Peter and there's James and there's the other apostles, the, the closest of Jesus' disciples, and 500 others. And he said, in those intervening 20 years or so, some of them have died. But if you were one of those people receiving Paul's letter, you could go and talk to one of those people. And they would say, yes, I met Jesus. And they'd be able to tell you the circumstances and what he said, and what he did. So this wasn't some sort of illusion. This wasn't wishful thinking on the part of the, the Jesus friends. Over 500 people at once 
witness Jesus risen from the dead. This wasn't a mistake. This was something that really happened. The next reason we can believe that Jesus rose from the dead is if we ask the question, well, where was the body? You know, the Jews were, uh, they hated Jesus. The last thing they wanted was for people to believe that he'd risen from the dead. So if the Jews had his body, they would have produced it straight away. Say, no, no, we've, we've had him executed by the Romans. But of course they couldn't. For the Romans... The last thing they needed was a new cult leader who people had believed had risen from the dead. If they had the body of Jesus, they too, well, they would have produced it. And then that would have put to bed, if you like, the speculation. But they couldn't. There was no body to produce because Jesus had risen from the dead. People have said, could they have gone to the wrong tomb? Well, it was in a garden near the place of Jesus' execution. And if on that morning, they'd gone to the wrong tomb. It wouldn't have taken many minutes to go to the right tomb or for others to go to the right tomb. It, it, would, it, wouldn't have it wouldn't have taken very long. Now, you can explore this in more detail. There's actually a, a lawyer called Frank Morrison who wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? And it's really interesting. And he takes exactly this line. He, he actually set out to disprove the resurrection because he was, he was an atheist. And actually, he looked at the evidence and the eyewitness evidence and the legal style evidence and came to the conclusion that Jesus must have risen from the dead because that was the only conclusion. I mean, there were, the Jews put around the story that Jesus' followers had stolen the body. But why would they do that? I mean, it, it, if there was some benefit to them, maybe. But actually, what happened to Jesus' followers? Well, they were persecuted. They were tortured. They were imprisoned. Many were executed because they believed and preached that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, some people are brave enough to suffer and die for something they believe is true, that is bigger than themselves and is worth dying for. And maybe we, we aspire that if we had to, we would. But would you suffer and die for a lie? Would you suffer for something you knew to be untrue? You know, those close disciples of Jesus suffered terribly. Why would they do that if they'd stolen the body in some sort of contract to fool people? It wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. The evidence is that Jesus rose from the dead. And there is no plausible alternative. So let's go on to the third section. Why we can believe that Jesus will rule God's kingdom on earth. And, and really, this is why it matters, because we could get through phases one and two and say, well, all right, if I accept Jesus is a real person, I accept Jesus rose from the dead. My next question will be, well, well, so what? Why does it matter to me in 2022, nearly 2023? And this is where it gets a little bit more pers uh, personal, because the resurrection proves a number of other things. Firstly, it proves that God will raise others from the dead and set up a kingdom. And this is where, if we're still in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses the fact of the resurrection and the evidence for it to make his case. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. He says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Well, that's really what I was just saying, isn't it? If, if, 
if in the life that he led and his friends that they suffered and were, were killed and executed, if there was nothing beyond it, he says, we're all men most miserable. There's no point to it. But verse 20, now is Christ risen from the dead? He has been raised from the dead and has become the first fruits of them that slept. And sleeping is often used as Bible's language of, of being dead, because if you're dead with the hope of Christ Jesus, you wake up again. So it's called a sleep. It's actually, the, it says Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so we're all descended from Adam, the first man recorded in Genesis, and we're all mortal. We all die and we all, we all disobey God as well. Even so, he says, in Christ shall all be made alive. So he's saying that the fact that Jesus rose from the dead tells us that God will raise others from the dead. Verse 23, every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. So Jesus, he's saying, was the first of others that would follow, but he was the first to be raised from the dead. And afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. So Paul's saying, Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, he's going to raise those who are his. So we're now into a sequence of events. And Paul is writing, saying so that Christ's going to come back. He's going to raise those that are his. Then verse 24, then comes the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So says Paul. That's one of the things the resurrection of Jesus tells us. Others will be raised. Christ is going to set up a kingdom where ultimately death will be done away with altogether. And that's why the gospel means good news. That's good news, isn't it? Well, actually, the resurrection tells us even more. Come with me, please, to Acts chapter 17. Because it tells us that Jesus is going to be the king and he's going to be the judge, the king and the judge of the world. In Acts 17, we're still with Paul. This time he's preaching in Athens. This isn't his writing. This is Luke, who we met earlier. This is Luke recording what Paul said in Athens. Acts 17, verse 30. Paul says, the times of this ignorance, God winked at. He's saying God's really just ignoring the fact that up till now you've not known his truth, the gospel. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent, to make a change. Why? Because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. So he's saying he's appointed a day when he's going to judge the world. He's going to decide what is wrong and what is right. And he's going to assign a judge. And that man who is ordained, well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know? We continue reading, whereof he has given assurance to all men in that he has raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus proves that he is that future judge and that future king in God's kingdom. And he will rule on the earth. Come with me, please, to Acts chapter 2. 
Now, Acts 2 is only six weeks or so after the res, um, after the, uh, sorry, no, it's, yes, just over six weeks after the resurrection of Jesus, and it's uh, 10 days or so after his ascension into heaven. And here we're with Peter, we've come across him a few times, and he's talking to a massive assembly of Jews who'd come to, uh, come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And he and his fellow disciples have just been given some special abilities by the power of God. And the Jews have come to say, well, what's going on? And Peter uses the opportunity to tell them what was going on and that this was about Jesus and his resurrection and what it meant. Come with me to Acts 2, verse 22, please. Paul, uh, Peter says, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you, by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know. So they knew that Jesus had done miracles and wonderful things that had proved that he was a man sent from God. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. says this was in God's plan, but you did it. You have taken him by wicked hands of crucified and slain. He says, you Jews, you handed him over to the Romans to be executed. However, verse 24, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Paul says God raised him from the dead. This was a sinless man who didn't deserve to die. And God raised him from the dead. So you see how he starts with this same fact, this provable, demonstrable fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, he has a lot to say, but let's summarize. Come down to verse 29. He says, firstly, men and brethren, let me speak to you of the patriarch David. He was one of the great kings of Israel a thousand years previously. Well, he was dead and buried, he says, and his sepulchre is with us to this day. He hadn't been raised from the dead. Being a prophet, though, so someone who wrote for God, David, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Peter saying, David, even a thousand years previously, he understood that God would raise Christ up to sit on the throne. Where's the throne of David? The throne of David's in Jerusalem. It's still got to happen. As we've said, Jesus is going to come back. Verse 31, David seeing this before, in other words, he was as a prophet, he understood this was going to happen. He wrote of the resurrection of Christ. And the way he described it was that his soul was not left in hell or the grave, neither did his flesh see corruption. And this Jesus has God raised up, whereof we're all witnesses. So you see what Peter's saying. He said, Jews, you killed Jesus. God raised him up. We have witnessed, we are eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And this is fulfilling what the prophet wrote and the extension of it is that he's going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. You see how Peter, like Paul, uses the resurrection of Jesus and then puts a logical argument to show how this was fulfilling what the Bible had said from the start. This was God's plan. And that the resurrection proves that God will raise the dead. He will send the Lord Jesus as the king and judge of this world and will establish this kingdom on earth where eventually death will be destroyed. That's where he's putting together those three references we've looked at.
Now, we've gone through those fairly quickly, but what I wanted to do is just show that there is great evidence, there is good reason to believe in Jesus Christ. Firstly, and most elementary, as a real person documented in history, we can see that there's good reason to believe that he rose from the dead. And there is good reason to believe that he will rule God's kingdom on earth because this is all stems from the fact that he was raised from the dead. The good news is that he invites us to live in that kingdom forever with him. And so I'd encourage you to take your time to read a little more. Look at the evidence. Let your faith grow built on fact, because real faith is based on something that's solid. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.